This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them. And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Robin Mob, Robert Love, and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. Hey, and I'm Mob, and this week I am not actually sitting opposite Rob in sunny Blackburn South. I'm in even sunnier Abu Dhabi <laughs> in the uh, Arabian Gulf in the Middle East. Well... Isn't that a coincidence? Because um, we we were just talking uh, last week about the the Suez Canal. How 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 warm is it over in um in is it are you in Abu Dhabi or? Yeah, I'm in Abu Dhabi, and uh, it's it's about uh, eight o'clock in the morning here, and it's it's a, it's about maybe in the high thirties. It's going to get up a little bit above that today, I think. Well, uh, yes, yeah, lovely day. Well, it's like that in beautiful Blackburn South, except it's in the high teens. So you've probably got a, <laughs> an extra 20 centigrade. And in the Sea of Okhots, uh, 150 years ago, it was a rather cool 26 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, now in, in Celsius, that's below zero, isn't it? So uh, that's, that's pretty cold. That, that's pretty cold. They are, they are heading up towards the, towards the Arctic Circle. Um, but I believe before you got to uh, the UAE, you were in a castle on the Rhine. I was indeed. Last week, last weekend, I was at a gaming convention, as in tabletop and role-playing and live-action games, not uh, poker machines, um, <laughs> in, in Germany. Yes, I was having a great time there. And uh, I'm now on my way back via the Middle East. I've got a few things that I have to get uh, sorted out here. And then I'll be back in sunny Melbourne, and uh, for our next episode, I'll be opposite you uh, on the microphone. I'm actually, interestingly, um, given our podcast is called uh, Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, where I am uh, in the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, it long ago used to be known as the Pirate Coast, and there were genuine bona fide pirates here. Well, that, that was presumably before they discovered that they had a, a massive amount of oil underneath uh, the sand dunes. Yeah, they actually uh, probably didn't need to be pirates once that happened. Um, yes, this was back in the uh, 17th to the 19th centuries, and uh, there were raiders there that were harassing all the shipping that was going on in the uh, in what is known as the Persian Gulf or the Arabian Gulf. Um both the uh, Europeans and Omanis uh, had a lot of shipping going on in the area, and it continued for a long time until the British came along. Uh, now, did, did the British send a gunboat? The British did actually send a gunboat, yes, uh, in, 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 a, in the tradition of the Brits, and they signed a peace treaty which all the local sheikhs along the coast eventually adhered to. Some of them after being uh, shelled <laughs> by the cannons of the, the ship. I've actually been to one very uh, interesting fort up in up in the north of the country here, which is called Ras al-Khaimah, and uh, they were a bit of a holdout, and there was a fort 
that uh, was was holding out, and they thought they were fine because they were a couple of miles away from the sea. So of course the the British boat was out of range, but uh, and this is something I could imagine Jack Aubrey. Yes. Of uh, Master oh, and Commander fame doing. Did the British send in a cutting out expedition? They did in a way, yes. They sent a longboat to the shore with a cannon on it and they took the cannon out and pretty much carried it <laughs> overland to the fort and then thumped the fort. So they, they had to surrender. So, um, yes, so that was in, I think, 1820. A peace treaty was signed with all the sheikhs and... Uh, you know, the the raids sort of continued a bit, they were a little bit enthusiastic for another 20 years or so. And eventually, in the 1850s, they signed a perpetual maritime truce with the United Kingdom. And that's why the uh, coast along here was also known as the Trucial Coast or the Trucial Shakedoms. And that's because of this word truce. Oh. So... Um, it was enforced by the United Kingdom, and then any time the sheikhs were having sort of disagreements amongst themselves, and let me be uh, fairly clear here, that happened a lot, um, <laughs> they would go to the uh, British for, you know, resolution of their, their issues. So uh, the UAE was never actually like a British colony or ruled by the British, but in, in one sense was uh, under, the, under the wing of, uh, of Britain, and... Uh, that kind of that leads today where there's 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 a tradition of uh, uh, English being a, a very common second language. Uh, a lot of the, uh, the the royal sheikhs here and prominent families might send their children to uh, British universities. Uh, a lot of the rulers here have you know been to Sandhurst and things like that. And this all goes back to uh, this time uh, before the Civil War. When this uh, this trucial this truce was signed and it became the the trucial state. So here, yes, I'm in Abu Dhabi, and, and uh, I'll be back next week. And, and last week, Michael, you were in fact uh, when when you were in Germany, you were on um, on the Rhine in a castle in Bacharach, and those castles were also populated um, by by pirates of a sort, but river pirates. Yes, yes, basically yes. So the the Rhine was a major. <clears throat> A major way for trade to, of course, go uh, through Europe, and the uh, the forts there. there there's pretty much where I was. I, I was at a place called Bacharach, which is uh, just along from what's known as the Lorelei Gorge, where the the Rhine becomes quite narrow, and pretty much there's a castle or a fort every couple of miles along that spot there. And, of course, any, any boats that were travelling up and down the river were, had to pay their tolls or they would be, um, they'd be in trouble. In fact, just a few miles up from the castle in Bacharach that I was staying at, there's that uh, very memorable fort that's actually um, in the middle of the river. So you Ooh, really is, couldn't is that avoid Mouse that Island? One. Mouse is it Mouse Island? Yes, I think that's what it's called. Uh, well, obviously, yeah. it, it, it would be Mouse in, um, in in German, where the where the evil Bishop Hanno was um, was chased by uh, by mice. Was he? Oh, I don't know this story. You'll have to tell me, Rob. 
Well, he was the, the evil the evil Bishop of Mainz, and um, he enacted great um, depredations upon uh, the the local villagers, and um, uh, including uh, burning some local villagers in a church. And as the cries of the burning villagers went up to the heavens, he said, "Oh, listen to the mice squeak!" And um, he was then chased by a plague of mice, and to to get away from the plague of mice, he rode himself out to his fort out on the island, but the mice swam across the uh, the river Rhine to the island, and there they devoured him alive. Well, that's probably a fitting end for such a uh, fine, upstanding member of the church. <laughs> and uh, mind you, I have to say that if you if you do a bit of research into the historical uh, evidence for this actually happening, uh, there is in fact none. But uh, but there you go. So in fact, um, so so you've been in um, the UAE, which oh, I that's think... yes, that's that. I've just I've just checked there, and um, yes, that's one of the ones. And then there is um, a another one, which actually really looks like um, a almost like a ship, because it is right in the middle of the uh, the water, and it was known as a toll castle. So yes, it was like these pirates in a way were sitting there and uh, you had to pay your money as you're going past. Yes, and in fact, that's, I believe that's where the term robber baron was invented because probably because land pirate sounds silly. <laughs> yeah, they had, a to- they had a chain across the river, actually, which was a really good way of, uh, of stopping, stopping the trade. And um, oh, I'm just checking here, and uncooperative traders would be kept in a dungeon until you know, the toll or a ransom was paid. And the dungeon was <clears throat> a wooden float in the well in the middle of the fort. Now that would have been unpleasant, wouldn't it? I, I think you'd be you'd be sending home to get your your ransom paid um, as as soon as possible. Yes. Fortunately, uh, it's it's now far more pleasant along the uh, along the Rhine at this in this period now, and uh, I think. Um, the main danger is having too much beer, pork, and delicious bread, which I engaged in all three. <laughs> now, now is, is that the main danger, Michael, or is that the main danger to you? Yes, well, that, that, that could be. Well, I do, I do remember, I, I've been to this uh, games convention many times, and once I remember I was standing up to give my, you know, my, my keynote presentation, and all of a sudden one of the organisers said, stop, stop, you can't start now. And I was wondering why... And then all of a sudden he came up and handed me a very gl- large glass of beer and I noticed that everybody in the audience waiting to hear me speak had one as well. And I thought, well, that's my type of conference. Well, yes, if, if the audience has drunk, so should the speaker. Now, now, now um, uh, for, for people who think that, that uh, we're just randomly uh, rambling on about uh, about piracy uh, we, we are in fact uh, we are in fact going somewhere with this um, so um, so I believe um, Captain Paul Watson of the the, the Sea Shepherd Michael um, published a, a very interesting um, article recently which was um, I believe the title was um, which, which he published on Facebook um, is it piracy if you're saving the whales and I think that this goes to the to the very heart of of our entire enterprise here looking at the career of the CSS Shenandoah so um, yes yes so so the sea shepherd they are boarding other ships they are they are you know other ships do tend to be sunk in their vicinity but if they're doing it for a good cause is it piracy uh, it's a it's a very vexed question isn't it 
and uh, the same the same things that were, were debated about the Shenandoah are in fact being debated about the Sea Shepherd. Of course, can you argue the Shenandoah was fighting for a good cause? That <laughs> uh, is the that is the question, I guess. Well, yeah, no. To be to be frank, now um, I'd like to do a um, response to uh, to one of our listeners. Um, last week we we brought up the uh, the the terrible case of the um, the Russian fleet that uh, traversed, uh, went around the world, and uh, ended up uh, arriving um, in the uh, the North Pacific uh, near where the Shenandoah was 150 years ago, and then was promptly sunk by the by the no, Japanese. No, not 150 years ago. It was uh, oh. in 1904, 1905. Yes, yeah, sorry, but the wrong, the, wrong war. <laughs> the, the Shenandoah was there 150 years ago, and uh, one of our listeners, uh, Nick Davison, replied um, because we we've been talking about uh, the the Russian fleet had had to go the entire way around the world to get sunk, and we were. We were speculating, you know, why why didn't they go through the um, uh, the Suez Canal? Because the in 1904 uh, 05 the the Suez Canal was uh, was uh, in operation. Um, but the the Nick Nick Davison um, put a link in to um, our Facebook page um, about the Dogger Bank incident, which is something that I have to say I had never heard of before, and. Um, I have to say, for, for something that, that where, where several people were killed, uh, it was, uh, I have to say, a, a somewhat somewhat uh, hilarious um, incident where the the Russian Baltic fleet was heading off to travel to Japan, which, given that they were in the Baltic, meant that they either had to go around the world or go through the Suez Canal. And they... Um, came upon three or four British shipping fishing trawlers in the North Sea at, at the Dogger Bank um, and decided that the three fishing trawlers were the Japanese naval fleet. And they It was had... actually 48 fishing vessels that were all um, just harmlessly catching their fish. And their big, their big problem was they had their nets out at the time, so yes. they couldn't even run away, which was, which was pretty bad. Uh, it's a, it's it's amazing to think that the uh, the Russians had thought the Japanese would be lying off Dogger Bank, which is in the North Sea between uh, Scandinavia and uh, and Britain. But that's what they thought. There was uh, widespread, uh, you could almost say, panic on board the the Russian fleet. There was fog, so they. They first off mistook a passing Swedish ship for a Japanese torpedo boat and radioed they were being attacked. As you do. As, As you, you do. do. Yeah, uh, yeah. They then saw the British trawlers who were happily signalling each other saying, you know, um, oh, we've caught a great big pile of fish or whatever <laughs> they were signalling each other. That was, that was taken to be um, sly Japanese signals, um, even though that... Nearest Japanese torpedo boat was thirty-two thousand kilometres away. Yes. Um, so the the searchlights went on to the uh, to the trawlers, and they were they were attacked. Um, and I think it's very sad that they didn't even uh, get a chance to to flee. 
Also, I think it's uh, very interesting that the Russian ships then started shooting at each other, mistaking each other for Japanese boats as well. It, it, look, it sounds very much like like what uh, yeah, in the thick of it would be called an omni shambles. Um, it was a total omni shambles. <laughs> so there were, uh, I think, a couple of Russian sailors killed in that as well. Uh, oh, and they, were... they uh, yeah. I, I'm just going to say the reason why there weren't more casualties. Can you think re- the reason why, Rob? Um, I, I I believe that the standard of Russian gunnery was uh, terrible, differently good. Yes, there, there was one battleship, the Oriole, which apparently fired more than 500 shells without hitting anything. Um, it went for about 20 minutes. Uh, I think they fired a whole lot of torpedoes from various ships as well, but none of them uh, uh, caused any severe damage. But um, there were a lot of ships that, uh, uh, that that probably abandoned ship, so there were crews, you know, putting on their life vests and um, heading for the boats or drawing their cutlasses. Oh, but... It was a complete and utter debacle, absolute debacle. But it's interesting because um, one of one of the things about this is that um, the the torpedo was a brand new invention in the um, in the early 20th century late 19th century and it had the navies of the world thoroughly spooked and apparently during the spanish american war um american warships used to fire at trains on shore or you know trees uh, thinking that they were torpedo boats because basically if a torpedo hit your ship you could go you could go straight down to davy jones locker very very quickly and of course um in the first world war when uh, somebody had the bright idea of mounting a torpedoes on um submarines um it changed the face of uh, naval warfare entirely yes so the um th- just to be just to clarify a terminology term when uh, Admiral Farragut said, damn the torpedoes, yes. when he was going up to uh, to New Orleans in the American Civil War, uh, he wasn't actually referring to torpedoes that uh, were these propelled underwater missiles. That was an old-fashioned term for naval mines. Yes, yes. Yeah, so... so the... mm. Mm. It was a, there was a change in uh, in a change in terminology. Uh, and, and yes, and and, and yeah, you know, mines were no fun at all. But yeah, you know, once once people started working out how to make your mines a move, b be aimed, and b explode and and sink you, uh, <coughs> yes, it was it was a whole lot of no fun. Now, sorry, uh, when I said uh, three British trawlers, um, three British um, sailors were were killed, um, and because of this, um, now. The, the British, uh, the British by this period um, in the early twentieth century were the custodians of the Suez Canal. Um, they, they'd initially got some control over the Suez Canal back in eighteen seventy five uh, because the Egyptians, who of course had, had, had built it with French finance, um, the Egyptians ran out of money, and so um, Benjamin Disraeli, with the help of the Rothschilds, stepped in and and bought. Um, a, a minority stake in the Suez Canal, uh, to which um, William Ewart Gladstone promptly um, took great umbrage because Disraeli hadn't gone through the British Parliament. Now, I, I think, I think to be frank, that um, you know, getting a minority stake in the Suez Canal, I, I think that's worth avoiding the British Parliament for. I think he uh, he jumped in very opportunistically, didn't he? It was a bit of a fire sale because the Egyptian government was. Um was burning through the cash 
and uh, they 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 needed whatever they could get from anyone. And um, so so that was so so the British gained sort of minority ownership at that point, and later on um, they became the administrators, and it became a neutral zone. Um, now, I think the British, probably quite rightly in 1904, said, um, I'm sorry, by firing on our fishermen and killing some of them, um, you have somewhat violated the, the laws of neutrality. Um, and so they... Well, it was known, it was known, the Dogger Bank incident was one name, but, you know, another name which I can definitely see being in newspapers and so on was the Russian outrage. Yes, uh, it, it was very outrageous. And apparently... It was also known as the... The incident of Hull, which I don't think is anywhere near as dramatic <laughs> as sounding as the Russian outrage. Yeah, well, well, I think all of the presumably the um, the, the trawlers had come from Hull because uh, there is to this day there's an 18 foot um, statue in Hull of one of the British sailors who was who was killed. Yeah. So, so there you go. But I, I, I've been to Hull, but I, I must have missed the memorial. How, Never mind. How, how did you miss an eighteen-foot uh, statue of a sailor? Um, <laughs> I, well, I, I don't really have an answer to that one, Rob. But I did actually miss the uh, miss the statue when I was in Hull, or as they pronounce it up in the north, Hull. 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 Okay. Yes. But anyway, so so the British absolutely refused to let the Russian Baltic fleet, and um, so the Russian Baltic fleet then went thirty two thousand kilometres um, around to the the Bay of Okhotsk, um, and clearly did nothing to practice their gunnery along the bay because um, they were then promptly um, sunk by the real torpedo boats of the Japanese. So so the panic in the North Sea ended up doing absolutely nothing for them. No, it just didn't really help their reputation, no, did it? <laughs> no, look, I, I, yeah, I, I don't think the uh, the Russian Navy really came out of either of those incidents with uh, with any great amount of glory. So thank you, uh, thank you to one of our listeners for for pointing out the Dogger Bank incident. It was a it was a very interesting thing to to learn about. I think uh, another just an interesting final point on that is that torpedo boats were uh, greatly feared for, for what they could do. And, of course, uh, within about 20 years, um, well, when we get into, the, into World War I, uh, there was another change in naval warfare, and it didn't become torpedo boats that everyone absolutely was terrified of. It was air power. And that became uh, obvious during the 1920s, but uh, a lot of the uh, naval commanders and shipbuilders didn't really want to know about that because that would have changed everything. So there was a lot of uh, a lot of cheerfully ignoring that. So it became it, it had to wait until World War Two till it became blindingly obvious that battleships were in fact uh, obsolete, and it was aircraft carriers that became the new capital mm. ships. Mm. Now, um. Now, that might have been a bit of a digression, but on the other hand, what what is this podcast if, if not about digression? And I think I have to say, <laughs> if, if you do come to a um, American Civil War naval and podcast, then you know a digression to an earlier twentieth century naval incident isn't all that much of a stretch. It's, it's not like we're talking about um, the process of temporal narrative in Buffy the Vampire Slayer or, or anything silly like that. But um, give us time, Rob. <laughs> give us time. <laughs> but. Um, now, now having having got through <laughs> once again most of our podcast, um, 
we should perhaps deal with them. So the, the Shenandoah, 150 years ago this week, was just about to go into the, the Bay of Okhotsk. And as we, as we flagged earlier in our episode, it is now getting tarnation cold. So on Sunday, May... Well, it's, the... it's, a, it's a very good thing, Rob, that uh, Midshipman Mason has made that second <laughs> pair of pants. He may actually be wearing both of them <laughs> at this point, because I, I'm looking in uh, Whittle's uh, journal, the Shenandoah, a memorable cruise, which I'm now holding up to the microphone yet again. And... Uh, Pretty much the the entries for the last uh, couple of weeks have been about how cold it is, and uh, they've actually had some very nasty squalls. They've they've ha- actually had to reef the sails and run on steam at a few points, and uh, they're still regretting the fact that they haven't seen any other ships. But spoilers. That's going to change awful soon, isn't it? Well, now, now, now. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll just um, give my weather report from Mr. Midshipman Mason. So this is from okay. Sunday, May the 21st. Fine weather with good strong breezes for the last four or five days, but it's been tarnation cold. The thermometer... Tarnation cold. I, li- I like that phrase. Tarnation cold. Yes, we're going to have to have a bit of a discussion because um, in, in a couple of weeks, um, Midshipman Mason uses the phrase, I'm not much of a tosser. And you know what? That doesn't mean what it would mean today, but uh, I'll, I'll just flag that. Okay. But yes, right. tarnation cold. The thermometer is low down as 26, rain and snow. And when, when the deck was not wet with either of these unwelcome visitors, the ship took in water enough to wet them from the ocean, where it is needless to say the supply is inexhaustible. The consequence of all this wet weather, that I had, had the chillblains very badly produced by wet, cold feet. So, so there you go. So, um, so uh, Mr. Mitchum Mason, I think he probably should have made himself a, uh, a pair of slippers. So, um, <laughs> or Ugg boots, actually. <laughs> now, they say we will have drier weather in the Okot Sea, and I hope so, although of course it must be colder. That I shall soon find out, for we entered the Okots this morning. Um, Yesterday at noon, we were within 40 or 50 miles of the Okhots or of the strait through which we were to enter. Steam was raised, but when we are ready, the captain concluded that it would be more prudent to stand off and on until this morning and go through in broad daylight, for this part of the ocean is little known except from the experience of whalemen. This morning, however, the propeller was lowered and we steamed into this place where we hoped to catch so many yanks. The land is very high and can be seen 40 miles off, the hills and mountains being covered with snow. They look terribly cold and make one shiver at the thoughts of what we are going to find further north. I feel this weather much more than I expected, but coming from the south where only three weeks ago we had the thermometer at 95 degrees and 100 degrees, (laughs) this is not to be wondered at. So, yeah, so in three weeks... They have gone from 100 degrees Fahrenheit to 26 degrees Fahrenheit. That That is pretty... Um, uh, no wonder he needs extra pairs of pants. And no wonder, that is extreme. And no wonder he's getting the chill blinds. So um, the other thing they have to worry about, of course, in, uh, in the, uh, the, the latitudes they're in, uh, are icebergs and floating ice, because the Shenandoah is absolutely not designed to push its way through ice. So I can understand why uh, Captain Waddell has 
has prudently decided they're going to sail in through uh, during the daytime so they can see what they're they're doing. Interestingly, um, Mr. Whittle, who takes no time in criticising his captain for for any decisions he makes, uh, doesn't appear to uh, criticise that uh, that choice as well. Yeah, I, I, I think if you've gone, you know however many thousand kilometres since, since leaving Ponapay, um, and then to run into the first piece of land you come into, that, that would not be seen as being good captaincy. That, that wouldn't. <laughs> so, um, so, Rob, we've actually had uh, the Shenandoah steaming up for the, or, or sailing up for the last three weeks. And uh, spoilers... Next week, it all starts to get very, very real again, doesn't it? Oh, it, it does indeed. There will be um, there will be prizes. Uh, there will be icebergs. Uh, there will be um, uh, Midshipman Mason starts reading Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. So I'm sure that that will be very exciting. Not not that the last few weeks since leaving Ponape has has not been exciting, Michael. We've we've got to discuss plenty of Russian and Japanese naval history, and uh, you know. It's, it's very true. Except this, in the next in the next few weeks, the Shenandoah does get its opportunity to strike its war-winning blow <laughs> for the Confederacy. It, um, it's war- uh, and and it just just as a, a hint, <laughs> the chapter in Whittle, though, despite the fact that they do this, um, is called "The News Is Bad, Very Bad." Uh, yes, um, oh, dear. because. Uh, that they are striking their warning blow just a little bit late. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the first prize they take in a while. It's a ship called the Abigail, and uh, it might be carrying a fair bit of whale oil. Um, it's also carrying truly heroic quantities of booze. Uh, yes. And, uh, that has some very interesting uh, implications. Well, it, it turns the Shenandoah from being a wet ship in one sense, into a very wet ship in in another sense, because because basically, um, yeah, they uh, many of the sailors lost no opportunity to get liquored up, and that kind of continued for for, for for quite some time. So anyway, we'll be we'll be talking about that next week, and uh, it'll be great to have you back in. Um, you know, sunny but perhaps less warm uh, Blackburn South, Michael. So for this yep. week, uh, this has been a Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with a Robin Mob, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob. And I'm Bob, and uh, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Tally-ho. Tally-ho. Okay, goodbye.